Hello, I'm Laura Serrant and welcome to my podcast, Speaking for Ourselves. This is one in a series of these podcasts. Speaking for Ourselves is about listening to the voices and the stories of the people who influence us. Speaking to Ourselves is also about listening to our own stories and our own voices and the importance of being heard. I hope you enjoy the podcast. In this episode, I'm speaking with my very good friend, Professor Calvin Morley. Hi, Calvin, and thank you for uh, taking time with us today. Hi, thank you, Laura. Pleasure to be here today to talk with you. Well, as I've just hinted, I do. We've known each other for for quite a few years. I, I won't hesitate to say how many years. But just for the people listening, who is Professor Calvin Morley? Ah. Uh, <laughs> That's a big question. Uh, <laughs> Always a big question, Calvin, at the beginning. <laughs> uh, Professor Calvin Morley is um, a nurse by background. And I, I, and I tell you why I say um, I'm a nurse. When I had my PhD viva, I was so nervous. The panel asked me, tell us something about you. And I said, my name is Calvin and I'm a nurse. And so it has always stayed, even when I do, you know, I still work clinically certain days of the week. I, um, when I answer the phone at work, I say, hello, my name is Calvin, I'm a nurse. And everybody laughs, and you know, so we know. So Calvin is a nurse, but a nurse um, with a mission. Um, my, my area is to look at, you know, equality, diversity, inclusivity in nursing practice. Um, my background in nursing is intensive care. And I, I have to admit, I've sort of stepped away from intensive care recently mm-hmm. because this nurse, Calvin, recognized how hard it was working in an IT during the pandemic. Oh, um, wow. I just needed to have a little break. So I now work in the recovery room and it's, it's, it's you know, quicker flow of patients and um, I don't get that emotional connection that you'd spend 12 and a half hours with one patient. So for me, it was taking a little step back to not get so emotionally involved because nursing is an emotional labor of love. So I'm taking a little break from intensive care. Okay. You're doing some intensive self-care. That's right. Yeah. That's a good way of saying it. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll we'll go with that. Maybe we might touch on those things as we we speak today. Um, Obviously, um, many of our listeners come from all over the world and they will have known or detected an accent within your voice so perhaps can you tell us a little you you're not coming across and I mm-hmm. as born and bred in London where you live yeah that, that that's true so no I am um, I was born and brought up in Trinidad Trinidad and Tobago this tiny little island um or twin island in the Caribbean I say tiny we're, we're quite we're one of the four largest to be honest um yes and we have a little Caribbean rivalry among the islands who's larger and who's not but um, yeah, I was born and brought up in Trinidad in a little village. My, um, my actual parentage, my grandparents' heritage is actually from slavery. So yeah. I grew up on a cocoa and coffee estate in Trinidad. So mm-hmm. when slavery was abolished, my um, great-great-grandparents were given a piece of land as part of the abolishment settlement. Right. So they, what they went, what they worked with as slaves were cocoa and coffee. So mm-hmm. I grew up on that cocoa and coffee estate and went to school in a little village, et cetera. I, growing up, I mean, as, you know, if you have international, um, an international audience, some people may identify. Growing up, I had to travel three hours to get to high school. Wow. The village where I left into the town. So that, that, was, that meant getting up 
and getting a bus at four o'clock in the morning. And from what like, age was this, Calvin? This was like from 11 till 16, till you would have done, or, or A-levels even, you know, so 11 till 18. Yeah. So right. it was a regular bus journey. I, and, and again, you know, the part of that whole growing up and that thing is um, sometimes the bus would break down and you'd be stuck in the middle of, it was a little bit of a forested area we had the bus drive through. Mm -hmm. So we used to call it the forest. You'd be stuck in the forest and then you have to walk the next 20 miles home in the evening because the bus broke down. And wow. there's no, there wasn't, you know, there was one bus. There wasn't like <laughs> extra buses coming like they are in England, you know. Nowadays you think, oh, the bus is taking 10 minutes. It's too long here in yes. London. But, you know, back home was just one bus. And I know from, I mean, you know that I'm from an even smaller island, Dominica. Mm -hmm. And um, you'll know, what we do know is that when you're in the country, so to speak, um, often, certainly in Dominica, there was no streetlights. So I assume that this, this travel was sometimes in darkness. Yeah, um, definitely sometimes. But there was no streetlights, that's one. Um, we did have electricity, but then again, it wasn't always, what's the word to say, it always wasn't connected. So yes. sometimes you'd have you'd have interruptions in the service, you know, you'd have a blackout. So you, you might get home in the evening and, you know, you go to bed at, you know, 10, nine o'clock in the night. But when you wake up at three o'clock in the morning to start getting ready for this bus, you will not um, you may not have electricity. So it's again by candlelight or lamp. So wow. it, 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 but it was a lovely growing up. It really was. It, yes. it, 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 it was a poor growing up in most respects, but it was lovely. It, it taught me a lot of lessons in life. And, and people won't be able to see, because obviously this is a podcast, but I can see you smile when you think about that. You're, I can feel that you're, you're back there in your, in your head and heart when you discuss, discuss this. And one of the things that strikes me is when, some, when I speak to people around these, the, the podcasts is that whole concept of home and belonging. Because obviously you had um, one upbringing you've told us about your family history which obviously has a whole different connotation there are no links to your passion for social justice and and equality but also then you transitioned from where you were to find yourself in in London how did you get to be here at this point did you train uh, in in Trinidad or no so I um I came to London and um I didn't really have an ambition when I came. I didn't have an aim. I just, I came and realized I liked it. Um, so if, if I backtrack, you know, um, when I left secondary school, because um, my parents couldn't afford for me to do A-levels. So mm -hmm. I left a GCSE level and I got a, um, a little like six month job with one of the government ministries back home, um, what you call the home office here, the immigration department. And I saved my money and I thought, I'm going to come to London a little bit, you know, see. And I came and I wanted to stay. Um, this is the truth. I fell into nursing. Because wow. I wanted to stay. And someone else from Trinidad who I met here, he said, um, well, why don't you apply to do nursing? You'll get a visa and you'll get some money while you're training. <laughs> and, and it just sounded nice. But I actually, before I became, I, and I did apply. I was refused, you know, because I didn't know anything about nursing, I'm being honest. Yeah. So, uh, but I was motivated because I was also seeing my friend who was, you know, doing his nursing program. And um, mm -hmm. so what I did, I went and I got a job in an elderly care home. Right. And I really learned the fundamentals of nursing care, what to do. Um, so I did all of those things and I then I reapplied and I got in at the University of Essex. I was one of their first um, 
Project 2000 cohort. Oh, wow. So I yes. trained here in London. So, and I, I fell in love with nursing then. You know, I, um, as a student, you have various placements. And I had a placement in intensive care, which is where I qualified on that unit. And I was like, yeah, this is a bit for me. This is, I, I didn't you like found your niche. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't like accident and emergency. I didn't like orthopedic, but I met. I went into intensive care and I really liked it. So I enjoyed it and I stayed there. So what was it about intensive care and being in that space that, that drew you? There, there were two things. I guess as a young, newly qualified nurse or student is about to qualify, I was taken up by all of the, um, equipment and the gadgets of ITU and how, you know, you can save someone's life. As I grew into intensive care, and I did leave intensive care for about six months and did some work on a HIV unit at the Royal Free Hospital, nine mm -hmm. months working at the Royal Free. And then I went, when I went back to intensive care, one of the things I valued was that um, in intensive care, you have 12 and a half hours with one patient and you can do everything for them that you want to do. Right. It's difficult sometimes in a ward situation to give that level of care you'd like to give to everyone. And then you have to, that's when you really begin to prioritize who needs this, who needs that. And it's still mm -hmm. care. But for me, intensive care meant I really got in to know the patient and do everything for them. So that, that became my, my true love with that part of the profession. You know, I really enjoyed it there. So Good. I had to leave it for like about nine months and then return to actually realize how much I appreciated intensive care nursing. Yeah, and that's actually something, part of what we do as human beings, isn't it? Sometimes we don't know the, the impact or how much something is part of us until we're actually no longer have it or we no longer do it. Mm. Equally, sometimes we can believe something is very much part of us. And when we leave it, we realize, oh, actually I've got on without that, or that is there is something else to do. So it, it's interesting to see you talk about um, that realization of where your nursing self belonged. Yeah. 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 Now, one of the things that I, I'm interested to just um, talk a little bit about is, you'll know from these podcasts, they're very much called Speaking for Ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's that I, I decided to do them to help people to hear and see the stories that they may not usually hear or from the perspectives or the people that they may not usually hear from. So the phrase speaking for ourselves is really important to me. So what does the term speaking for ourselves mean to you? Um, so speaking, I mean, for I, I, when I reflect on my life and where I am now and all that I've sort of, not, not sort of, but all that I've come across, I've encountered, um, that whole intersectional bit of my life, I think it gives me authority to speak. So I speak as someone from slavery descendant. I speak as a gay man who was brought up in the Caribbean and lived here mm -hmm. and, not open, no, and was not openly gay in the Caribbean until I came here. Yeah. I also speak as an academic, um, a nurse leader. So when I get all of, bring all of that together, it gives me the authenticity and the authority to say, this is my area. So when I speak about we need to look at the intersectional approaches of someone. I just look at myself, gay, black, from the Caribbean, academic, man in nursing. And you get yes. that whole thing where I, ca I can begin to really understand the nuances of where people are and, and you know, where they're coming 
from where their, their own voices and perspectives are. So then that gives me the voice to speak for other people. So I, some of the organizations within nursing that I work in, we're now reviewing because we're looking at gender identity policies. Yes. How do we provide for this? And this came out, I, I will tell you, Laura, um, and learning to speak for people and for myself, is that one of my sisters is also a nurse and she rang me up about, you know, this is way back when, she rang me up, you know, like on a Saturday and we were having the family chat and she said, oh, this doctor came out um, and said to me, I don't want that thing looking after my patient. And that thing was another nurse who wow. was transitioning from male to female. Wow. And then we started to have the discussion and I said to her, so what did you do? And she says, oh, I knew you'd tell me that. Because <laughs> you know, that's what I'm noted for. You know, I, I, but when, what transpired is she then started telling me about the, the experience of this nurse who didn't have anywhere to change into their uniform. So right. this nurse, when they came into the hospital, went into the toilet visitors would use, or like mm -hmm. in the main entrance, and got changed there because the hospital never provided for them. Right. And that's why I think, so when I, I speak now, you know, it's from listening to other people's voices, hearing right. what they have to see, and then taking on that agenda. So now we think if we have an agenda identity policy, we should also then have, look at, you know, uh, changing rooms for staff, and yes. bathrooms and stuff, and how, how we provide for everyone, you know, that, yes. that is equitable as such. Yes. So, so, so that's my voice. My voice comes from experience. And as I said, um, my family knows I will always speak out. So sometimes they don't like always telling me immediately when something happens. Because <laughs> they know what's coming. <laughs> exactly. So I'm like, why, why are you telling me that if you know what I was going to say? Why didn't you just do it? So, and I guess that's part of our voice. It's sometimes people want to sound things out to us. Yeah. They come to you. They know the answer already. Yes. But they want to come to you. So, you know, I, I, I indulge me for a moment. Most people would have seen the Shawshank Redemption. Yes, and my favorite it, film, by the way, of all <laughs> films of all time. <laughs> you know, if, if I remember it rightly, in the Shawshank Redemption, you know, Dupree's in, in, in prison, et cetera. I, I, and then there is, um, now I'm going to forget his name, Morgan Freeman, who is a prisoner in there, is right? Red? And, yes, Red, yes. He acts as Red, that's right. And he goes up for parole and he was generally seeking parole. He didn't get it. He was turned down. The second time, Dupre came, comes in and he makes friends with him. Mm. And he was up for parole, but he didn't feel ready to leave. So he deliberately made a, did something that squashed his parole. On the third attempt of parole, Dupre escaped, went out, and he had created a network on the outside now. This is Red, Morgan Freeman. Yes. And when he went for parole, he was ready. And sometimes yes. when people come to talk to us, it's like they're ready for parole, but do they really want to take it on? Do so by they speaking to us, they're creating a network, they're creating a sounding board to say, Am I doing the right thing? Am I ready to do this? Yes. And I think that's one of the things when you come back to, you know, what is our voice? Sometimes our voice is actually the sounding board voice, you know, for other people to say, I know you've been down this road and you could probably tell. Yes. Me. Yes. So, so, so that's how I kind of like it a bit. So it is really about providing or a space or an opportunity or a way in which people can speak or check out their own story or their own preparedness, as you said. Yes. yes, definitely. Have you always found it easy to speak your story? Um, no. The, the, the answer is no, it's, it's not always been easy. And, um, you know, th this isn't about um, saying, you know, you've been my friend and my mentor, 
but I remember at one of the Mary Seacle Awards, you, you gave a talk about standing on the shoulders of giants. <laughs> yes. And I was in awe of that, that. And I thought, <laughs> I need to start finding my giants. <laughs> I knew I had a voice. I just, the voice just needed developing and, and growing and coming out. So yeah. I, I always knew within myself what, what I wanted to challenge and what I could do, but I didn't have the voice. I didn't have the finesse of knowing how to, to maneuver certain environments. Um, that that we encounter where those environments where decisions are made you know mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll be really blatant for you you know today um people are talking about the nepalese um nurses coming in and you know it's unethical because they're on a red list and and, and you have to be really tactful because all of us feel very passionate about that and even on social media i'm tactful and said you know it's unethical let's start with that and then yes. we could go into the other things so so my voice was found i said from starting finding my giants and standing on them and, um, and one of those other giants had been Professor Deborah Jackson in Australia, because I learned something from Deborah. Mm -hmm. She molded me and guided me in a way that, and I thought, wow, she's just got this natural flair for coaching people. Yes. I want to be like that, you know? I, I, and so you, you learn from people. So those giants help you. And now you see yourself as people tell you, oh, I'm standing on your shoulders today, you know, thank yes. you, et cetera. Yes. It's, it's, it's strange, isn't it? Because that shift from being, um, you know, somebody who is seeking a platform to support their development to being a platform for others sort of happens almost without you realising that that happens. And I have a phrase which I use quite a few times. I probably used it in that presentation about lifting as you climb. Yes. And... That is the that is the kind of essence of what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. That you are you're in that space yourself now. Yeah, and and, and it's wonderful, you know, like because you know I share I share the academic space, I share the clinical space, and um, so I see you know all of these things happening. And um, in in the academic space, you know, you have people say I have people staff come to me and say, but I don't know if I can do a doctorate for four or five years. You know, I don't know if 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 that's in my DNA and my makeup. It's such a long journey to live with that. And it's really, those of us who've been through that process, we know it's really living with that doctor and that journey. And, and now I've realized, you know, I say to people, well, you know, there are other ways of getting a doctorate. So have you looked at, you know, by publication, you know, mm -hmm. post-publication, you know, as a publication route, and it, make, it breaks it up for them. So you say, you know, yeah. you can do three little studies, get them published, get X amount of papers, and then you combine it. So it, it's about how, you, how you, you mentor people and you coach them and you say, look, there are different ways. There's not just this traditional route. But I think people like yourself and myself, we came down the traditional route where you know you had to do certain things if you wanted to get yeah. on and, and get it on with. And now, but we also now realize that, you know, a lot of people have dyslexia, dyscalculia, all of these sorts of stuff, um, you know, disabilities within learning as such. And it's how we begin to acknowledge that and support it. I think yes. it's really, really important. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, th th that's one of the ways, you know, um, about, you know, this lifting people up. I, I, I always believe that, you know, I, I take it a little step further. I said, you're also creating a safety net. Because yes. your people will always tell you, Calvin, you slipped up. Or Calvin, you're going to fall, but I'm here to support you. Because if you go back this way and you do it this way, because we're not all perfect. I'm not perfect. And no. we depend on those that we also coach mentor and help develop to tell us when we're doing, getting things wrong yes and i think that's really important to yes. have a network that tells you you're not getting it right 
and and that is absolutely really important and I think particularly as you find as you develop and you grow in your career certainly if you you seem to be succeeding going up the ladder whatever the ladder is or wherever the ladder is that there are less sometimes it can be there are less and less people who are willing to tell you when you've got it wrong yes so that's very that's a really really important point so what struck me when you were just speaking then is about then there's an element of risk isn't there in telling your story and or asking for that feedback or doing that mentorship what what do you think are the risks or challenges of putting yourself in that position to to tell your story and to actually receive or give mentorship i think so i i over the summer um i have to admit i don't read as much as i probably should be reading um because work just always gets in the way but I still try to read at least three pages of a book every night. And the book I had for my summer to read was, it's quite a small book. It's by Edgar Sheen called The Humble Inquiry. Right, yeah. And I, I, what resonated with me with The Humble Inquiry is Sheen says, when we ask questions, we make ourselves vulnerable. Yes. And that's the vulnerability. It, it, it's actually a good, almost a good quality to recognize and have. Because if I asked you today, you know, Laura, how do you think I did? I actually opened myself up to you to take whatever you say. And that makes me vulnerable. Yes. You know, it, it, it really makes me vulnerable. And I think, I think that's important to be able to see yourself as vulnerable in when you ask for feedback. Yes. That, that, and that's the authenticity. It's not me telling you, oh, I knew I didn't do this well, but just still tell me. And if I say, say that to you, then I'm almost co-constructing your answer for me. Yes. But if I just ask you outright, you know, how did I do today? I've just made myself really vulnerable. And, and one of the things I learned from this book over, over the summer reading it, um, and he's done several other series like Humble Leadership, et cetera, which I'll probably go on to read now. Yes. But the Humble Inquiry really talks about how we ask questions, how we receive that feedback, and how we also give feedback to people yes so, you know, rather than me telling you oh Laura if you do that you're going to fail you know absolutely there's a, better, there is... there's a different way of saying that 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 makes more <laughs> that's more beneficial to you yes yeah it reminds me of me um, reading and listening to Brene Brown mm. and she talks a lot around vulnerability and she talks about leaning into your vulnerability mm -hmm. you know um and actually recognizing that that's also a seat of power yeah. Because it's a route by which you can get to know yourself more. It's a route by which you can learn more about the world, you know, um, and being open to those to those questions and questioning yourself in that space, too. So, yes. Yeah. And importantly, you know, um, we work in really large organizations that are quite complex. Yeah. And um, the, so these large, complex organizations, I think communication is really important and also how we d demonstrate those skills we have. So, yes. so that vulnerability is part of it. Also how we ask people questions, how we speak to them, particularly in this post-COVID-19 you know, situation we're in still. Yes. Um, it, it's, it's, it's really important. Yeah, you've, you've, you've mentioned obviously through your work in intensive care and now around COVID-19 and we've all been globally through, um, you know, a combined and in some ways shared and in some ways different experience 
around living with and living through the acute state of the virus. What, and, and you have been absolutely literally on the front line in that within intensive care and you know nobody will have not seen um, the pictures and the views that we saw around what was happening in intensive care and across healthcare services, not just in the UK, but worldwide around this. And you've talked about the emotional labor of that work the, and the intensity of the emotional labor of that work during these last few years, particularly. What would, would you say are this, is the greatest learning that you have had through your experience of COVID-19? Um, my greatest learning, um, there were two things I'll tell you first. Professionally is that nurses can really change the world. You know, I, I, and I said this in a um, talk I gave for Sigma recently. I said, you know, when nurses talk, the world listen. So it's time we start roaring. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when nurses, we, we're one of the most trusted professions in the world. You know, I think we're the number one tr trusted profession. Yes, for we a number are, of yes. years. So it, it's important to, that, that we acknowledge it and we hold that truth within us. Um, so COVID taught me that, you know, nurses, um, we support each other. I mean, there were times we only ever saw each other in the changing room. And it was a fleeting, like 30 seconds hug. Mm -hmm. And that was it. But you know, that person was there for you at the end of it. Um, yes. So I learned that that professional collegiality almost and support we offer. But what I realized is that for me personally, there needed to be space to talk. So my, my partner would come, would walk up to the hospital and wait for me yes. when I was during COVID, when I was working in intensive care. And he'd say, OK, this is your moment. We will walk slowly. You have 45 minutes. Get it all out of your system. Because <laughs> when we get home and sit down to eat dinner, I don't want to hear. I'm not doing it. And <laughs> <laughs> rightly so. I, cannot, I shouldn't be invading his space at home as well. You know, in that sense, yes. about my work all the time. But we were in, you know, as there are usually unprecedented times then. So I realized for me, talking is important. And coming from a West Indian background, we don't acknowledge the term counseling. We don't mm -hmm. acknowledge that term support, but we do it yes. because West Indians, we say, oh, me, I gotta get it off my chest. I need yes. to get it off my chest and we will talk. But in a Westernized society, that is counseling or that yes. is, you know, some sort of supportive conversation or conversation with meaning. Yes. Um, so whenever that acculturation thing, when I was here, people said, oh, do you think you need to have some emotional support? Do you need to talk to someone? I was like, you crazy. You know, like, <laughs> my, my mentality of going back home is, you know, you have to, and I use the term psychiatric using that, you know, you know, diagnosis, you have to have some sort of psychiatric illness to want to have to talk to somebody and to get support. And I'm not one of those people, but yes, you know, you have to learn, I interpret it in the culture you sit in as well. So for me, I learned that communicating was really important. And um, it was, part of it was also empathy, how to, so, I, I, I was working with a lot of patients who were, and we know COVID disproportionately affected black and Asian people. Yes. And we were using iPads to tell families. It was like a television program to say, you know, your, your father is now dying or your husband yes. is dying. And some families have these cultural traditions where they need to drop a, put a drop of water on the person's tongue before they die. Yes. And it's just for the fact that you could have done that for them. Yes. So at least they saw it. And one of the things I started doing, and which was 
one of the reasons why I left intensive care for a while. It's that whole thing of when I have to turn the iPad off when the person has died. Because yes. what do I leave it? So then I started leaving it on and explaining to the family, we're going to now lay the body out. This is how we do that. I'm going to give him a wash. So I'll probably turn the screen backwards so you don't see what, see the, you know, maintaining dignity. Yes. But, but you're talking and they hear you talking to their, to their relative. And I think that was really comforting. I yes. think so it, it was learning how to comfort patients in ways we never really thought of because we had to have new ways of communicating with patients and their families. So yes. I think that was also important. That's why I say nurses that we are invaluable and we, 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 always, we always find a way to do it. Basically. Absolutely, absolutely. The um, I suppose the, the one one thing that strikes me is that you know if there's ever a profession that can make a silk purse out of a salzier, as the phrase goes, it's it's nurses. Yeah. Um, and certainly that's recognised. It's interesting that you say um, that we can change the world, which I absolutely believe. Um, and Dr. Ted Ross, you know, the the director general of the World Health Organization, thinks the same. Um, but tell me a little bit about your phrase, which I absolutely love, that we have to learn to roar. So I think, yeah, so that phrase is, um, and, and when I say, you know, earlier on when I speak to you, I said, uh, sometimes we have this voice, but we don't have the finesse of using that voice in certain, in certain mm -hmm. spheres. So you have to learn how to, how to finesse that voice at times. So nurses can roar at every level from the band five nurse or the healthcare, you know, the nursing associate band four nurses, all the way up to band nine, tens, we, we should be able to roar. And I think for me, roaring is about the political elements. I'm not sure how much in the nursing curriculum being political is, is embedded. Teach, and when I say political, I'm, I'm not talking about going and becoming an activist, but understanding policies understanding how, how white papers are done, you know, how they become acts, how, they, how, how that impacts on your career, your profession. So I think we really need to teach nurses these things within the curriculum so they get an understanding of the political ideologies that influence nursing and nursing practice. Yes. So, and, and I think once they have that understanding, they'll be able to talk and roll because even at whatever level they are, they'll say, okay, this policy, the trust is implementing, how does that how does that affect us? How does it affect X, Y, Z? Um, how did you come about, you know, passing this policy? Did it go through the stages that it should normally go through? You know, was yes. there a draft? Was it voted on? So they should be able to ask those questions. And, and that's that's roaring in its own right. Yes. And then, yeah. you know, we have the more sort of, the, and those things come in with the social justice elements. So if we, again, nursing should be embedded within, or social justice should be embedded within the nursing curriculum. And I, Again, I said this recently at a talk that nursing has always been a social justice and equity profession. We've yes. always done it, but what we've done is never taught it. Yes. Because yeah, we, we've built on the foundation that nursing derived out of doing good work and supporting people, et cetera. Yes. So we never say to people, but we now live in a society where it's no longer done out of good work as such. That's where it originated from is where nursing is now and how we need to teach social justice to nurses and how to get that. Yeah. So I think that's when nurses can begin roaring. They're, you know, meeting with their managers, you know, questioning. Nurses yes. need to question. And it starts from when you do the multidisciplinary ward round, when the dietitian, the physiotherapist, the consultant, whoever else is there at that moment, and they tell the nurse, this is the plan for the patient. For the day, 
that nurse should be able to question and say, why are we doing this? Not just say, yeah. yes, thank you, I'll, I'll get it. Because we're the ones that stays with the patient for the next 12 and a half hours. Yes. The whole team goes away. They just yes. come and give input, but the nurse is constantly there. So that roaring starts with the nurse asking those questions. So Let maybe we're back to the humble inquiry. Yeah. Putting your place in that vulnerable position to actually yeah. challenge or to ask questions, but in order for a greater good, really. Yes. Because, as you say, after the ward round or after that activity, you are the you're the one between that person, that patient, that family, that community, and them having an equal chance of a good outcome. Yeah, it, it is, and 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 it's also that that same analogy of you know you are always around. It's the same thing with when we have students, you know, nursing students. They come into the classroom. And various people may teach them, but you know, you be the personal tutor for the, for three years running, so you yes. develop the relationship. You knows when that person tells you they, you know, a family member have died, whatever happened. You yes. should know, you know. So it's it's building that relationship as well, because yeah. we're, we're we're very much a profession that that thrives on relationships and communication. Yes, and as you said, communication and being able to speak being able to be heard, being able to talk and to ask and to question is quite central to who we are as human beings as, and individuals as well, as well. So can I just ask you, cause I, I hear you, um, I went back and listened to your wonderful, should I say speech at the Sigma conference. And for those who know Sigma is, is, a, it is an honor society for nurses um, that exists very, very well established within the United States and now other parts of the world um, and, and really growing, I think, in, in the UK. Um, what inspires you to tell your story? What make, gives you that compulsion to speak on the platforms you speak on? Um, so there's, there's two things here, okay? One, it's because of probably my DNA, who I'm, how I'm made up around this whole idea of, you know, and at that Sigma conference, I said, basically social justice, the tenets of social justice are diversity, equity, inclusion. Those are, those are the tenets of social, they're the pillars, you know, we stand on for social justice. And there are various models, you know, the distributive models of social justice and all these things exist and economic models, et cetera. But so, so there's that element that, that, you know, I would always speak up for truth as such. And the other thing is, um, I, I share my, my story, my voice, because it's something I learned very early on in clinical practice. It's that if, and this is when I became a charge nurse as such, I realized that if one nurse is doing something incorrectly in clinical practice, book it, there's another one somewhere along the line doing that same practice. Mm. And that's how we get, you know, clinical incidents happening, et cetera, adverse events, because somebody isn't doing, you know, practice the way they should do it. So I realized that exists. And then I thought, if I have this story, there are other people with my story and I can amplify their story through my voice. Yes. And they may find bits that resonate with me. Yes. You know, yes. I, I, and, and take, so, you know, not everything I say may resonate, but there are elements of what I say, and that will help them I'm say, actually, I'm not alone. What he just said. So, you know, when I did my inaugural lecture, 
on the house of racism and I looked at the rooms, I had people saying to me, I thought you were talking about me. I seriously saw what you said about microaggressions mm -hmm. that actually happened to me. And um, some of those stories I give were real life stories that I was witnessing. Yes. I was like, you know, I, I listened to one person I work with in clinical practice said he was given the job. He was seconded into the position. And this is a young black man. And then he was sent back to, his, to the unit to work because the secondment ended. But then someone went on leave. So he went back again for three months. Then the position was advertised. He didn't get it. But a young white man who is not a nurse got it. <laughs> and he was then asked to come in and work for three months to show this young man the ropes. Yes. And, and you know, those are the things I was seeing, you know. How, how we work in organ how organizations treat people. Yes. So yeah. I, I think when you see people's story also, they may not see what is happening to them. And yes. we can, we can because of who we are and what our work and research has informed our thinking, we can make better sense of their sense-making process. So we listen to their sense-making process and make sense of it. And you think, ah, this is what is happening here. And so then therefore you think I can use my voice to amplify your experience that you then resonate with and think, ah, now I know how to deal with it. Oh, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, one of the things that always strikes me is how when we often talk about, um, you know, exclusion, prejudice, discrimination, etc., people often talk about the perpetrator and the victim and the person who is missing and silent is the observer. Mm -hmm. You know, the person who is who's, who's not directly but indirectly observing just as you the example you shared with your sister who's the observer of what's going on and and I like that your question is so what did you do <laughs> and, and her response was well I'm talking to you because you you seem to know it all <laughs> you know and you must realize at this point we're now talking in full West Indian dialect <laughs> I, yes yes I can, I can just imagine it having had that conversation, had a conversation many times in in my own kind of friends and family circle so here we are now in 2022 and, you know, there's young Calvin, the nurse, mm. pre-nurse who's traveled yeah. and transitioned. You've mm. traveled in distance, in geography mm. and in position and identity to some extent. What would you say to your younger self? Looking back at Calvin on the broken down bus, mm. what would you say to yourself now? Um, what would I say to myself? I'd say keep going because there were times I wanted to give up. Mm -hmm. I would, I would really. Um, so you know, I, I, I'm, I, I say it out loud, Laura, um, to people. I only started wearing shoes when I was going to high school at age eleven. So I went to primary school bare feet. Mm. Um, and one of the things is. Um, I would say keep going because, and, and I, for me, it all happened at the right time. So I, you know, I wouldn't say I want to change anything, but there are moments when you want to give up. Yeah. Because I, um, you know, I, I had to deal with a lot of stuff. I transitioned here, as you said, you know, living into the UK. I came out as a gay man here in the UK, then had to go and come out in Trinidad, which was another <laughs> big thing, you know? Um, so, so there are all these elements. Um, so, but I would say keep going and 
for, for me, it was, it was about don't give up. There, there, there must be good out of what you're doing, basically. Yes. Don't give up. There must be, you know, the, the good of what you're doing. Yeah. Don't give up. There must be good in the base of what you're doing. And actually that has come to pass in the, you know, the, the adaptations that you made during COVID in terms of families and helping them transition from their, and their, their loved one transition from one phase of life to the next phase yeah. really in the in their life course so I think that's really really important um what strikes me again when you talk about don't give up and the times you want to give up is they're the times where often we we speak to ourselves we hear the stories we hear the voices of what we're saying and that's one of the key things for me that's really important um not just the stories we tell to others but the the messages and the stories we tell to ourselves um, and that's why you'll know from the podcast that I use the hashtag uh, silence speaks. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask you the question I ask all my guests on the podcast is when you're quiet at this moment and you listen to your own voice inside, what is your voice, your silent voice saying to you? My silent voice says, you can do it and others will benefit. Because sometimes I say, you know, um, I'm in a position now where you come across at times and I think people need to realize this. Um, you know, they, they see us in the media and social media or at work and think your life is all wonderful. Yes. Life isn't all wonderful. Um, we, you know, you're attacked for the things you do, which should be right anyway, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so, and sometimes within yourself, you, you're just thinking, you know, why am I doing it? You know, so, you know, I, I do my silent voice says, keep doing it. You know, other people will benefit. It yes. will make a difference. So, so that's not my mantra. I will make a difference. I am at the stage, my silent voice is at the stage of my career now where I say, what is your legacy when you leave Calvin? Yes. When you retire from this profession or this job, or you were to die suddenly, what is the legacy you are leaving? So that's what my voice is always telling me. And, yes. you know, I, I hopefully you heard, you know, although I said to you, I fell into nursing um, at the beginning, I really did fall in love with nursing. And I yes. hope that's come through this podcast. But one of the things is that I always, you know, come back to this thing, you know, is what will my legacy be for nursing? Yes. What can I turn back and say, I don't want the next generation of nurses to say, but Calvin, you knew that was going on. What did you do about it? Yes. I want to be able to see them say, Calvin, I love what you did about that when it was occurring. How can we go ahead doing something else? I don't yes. want them to hear a moaning Calvin's voice, but that, that voice that said, actually, through my legacy, I made a difference for this. Yes. And that then leads us very nicely to, again, the second question I ask um, all my guests. So at this stage in your life, when you're seeking your legacy and learning to roar, <laughs> what three words would you use to describe yourself at this point and why? Um, so I'll say warrior because I just fight or non-stop. I'll always fight from for causes. I'll say warrior. I'll say talent seeker coach. So I would sit, I, I would walk, I would sit in my department because we have open plan offices. And I would I would look at people and think, gosh, you've got such a good talent. And then I'll say, let's have a coffee. 
And I'll say, you know, you can do blah, 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 or this is how you do that. And they're like, nobody's ever told me I can do that. And then you empower that person, you coach them a bit. And the next thing, you know, six, nine months down the line, they tell you, I've got this position that really reflects what you were telling me. And they've moved on in their job and their career. So I think I am really good at that. And um, complex, Laura, my final word is complex. You know, Mm -hmm. earlier we started this podcast, you asked me, you know, who is Calvin? And I probably give you a really nice sanitized version of Calvin. You did, but, Calvin. But to be honest, <laughs> I'm also a very complex Calvin. I'm very complex in terms of I have my own demons. I I fight with, um, you know, things around my, in the terms of, you know, I hold a spiritual belief. And then, you know, some according to what church you go to, they'll tell you you're wrong to be gay. So I, I have that complexity around that. How do I deal with that? I have my own family life with my husband who I may have his own problems and how you do. So there are complexities. Yes. So we're, so, and I, I, I mean, other people may face the same thing I face, but I just see that I'm a complex person because I'm not in compartments of today, this is Calvin the gay and today, this is Calvin the black and today, this is Calvin the nurse and this is Calvin the yes. professor. It's every day, all of those things rolled into one. Yes. And that makes it complex. You know, I think people always hear, and again, that's because of the, the, the era we live in. We hear the good things about people. Oh, yes. you've, you've, you've launched an initiative or you've got a million pound grant or you've done that and, you know, 10 papers published. But they don't hear your lows. And when that no. comes, so, you know, when you, that's when I said to you, you know, I'm a warrior, I'm a fighter. My voice, my silent voice says keep fighting because we do get knocked back. But yeah. I don't I, I don't go on my social media page and say today is because you know, um, I don't think I need to burden other people what I go through. But so there is that element where, you know, we are complex and, and Calvin is complex. And I, I'll leave it at that, you know, complex person. So we have warrior, talent seeker, coach, and complex. I think that is a good summation of you, Professor Calvin Morley. And although you did give me a sanitized, nice fit version right at the beginning, I think through the podcast, we've got to see some of that complexity and certainly some of that warrior in there. So the final thing I want to say is how can people contact you if they want to link up with you? So um, I will be honest, I don't have a LinkedIn page. I don't know why, but I don't have one. But um, there's my email, which is widely available on the net, my work email, which is my surname Morley C at lsbu.ac.uk. Or people can find me on Twitter, just type in Calvin Morley. That's the easiest way to find me, I guess. That's the, that's where I usually find you on Twitter. <laughs> and, you know, revel in the Friday funnies. But, you know, I know that they, I don't know when they disappeared, but they will return if you don't yes, know what they, they are. They returned last week, yes. There you go. There you go. There you go. Well, I just want to say thank you for gifting us your time and your energy and yourself. And let's hope that when people hear this, they too recognise the importance of all of us, not only being able to speak, but also learning to roar. Thank you, Calvin. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. I'm Laura Serrett, and you have been listening to my podcast, Speaking for Ourselves. We all have a voice and we all have stories to tell. But if we don't use our own voices and tell our own stories, others will speak for us. And at best, 
they will mistell our stories and at worst, they will render us silent. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. See you next time.